Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Welcome to the EduTrends podcast, conversations with experts from around the globe about the discovery and creation of the future of higher education and lifelong learning. I am Jose Pepez Camilla, director of Tech Labs, an educational innovation unit of Tecnológico de Monterrey. Over the past three decades, I have been working on innovative pedagogies and learning technologies. I hope this EduTrends podcast will help us understand the future of learning. This episode's guest is Emiliana Vegas, co-director of the Center for Universal Education at the Brookings Institution. She is an expert on education in developing countries. We talk about the challenges and opportunities in Latin American educational systems. We also discussed the new role of teachers and strategies to improve educational outcomes, such as experiential or active learning. Well, uh, I'm uh, in Washington, D.C., visiting the Brookings Institution, and I'm having a conversation today with Emiliana Vegas. Uh, Emiliana, thank you for receiving me. You're welcome. A pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been working on the last uh, uh, decades uh, in um, education, in particular in, in K-12, uh, and uh, your focus has been Latin America. Yes. Uh, what have we learned about the educational systems in Latin America? Oh, um, thank you for that. That's a very big question. I think the, the key lesson is that we... As a region, we're very committed to expanding educational opportunities, and we understood that as expanding access to schools. But we didn't think through how to deliver quality education to all from the very early on. And so now we find ourselves with a lot of uh, children and youth in schools and growing in universities, but still our education institutions aren't preparing them with the skills they need to succeed both at work and in life. And so I think the big lesson from that Latin America has kind of provided to the world is how important it is as you grow and expand educational opportunity to also make sure you're doing it in a way that ensures that you have effective teachers in front of every student, that you have adequate um, curriculum and materials, and that um, especially nowadays when we have technology availability and where information is kind of ubiquitous, that school is a place where students can learn to process information and to apply information to solve problems. That's something that was quite different in the past. And I think our region is, what worries me about Latin America is that, um, you know, we, we believe in the value of education, but our societies haven't been well equipped to demand that schools really prepare students and, and their um, graduates to be innovative, to be creative, to collaborate effectively, to be productive citizens. Um, and so we find ourselves with countries that aren't growing, where inequality is increasing, and where democracies are, frankly, not working as we would like. In uh, A couple of years ago, I saw um, a survey in, in Mexico um, 
on the opinion of people about our educational system, in particular K-12. And, and the opinion was not that bad. Uh, they, I think there was like a seven, eight uh, uh, over 10. Uh, so th you think that there is also uh, something that we have to do to prepare the public opinion to pressure our governments? Absolutely. I think that when you look at other countries, for example, Chile, where um, the parents also had a high opinion of where their students were going to school, and it was the students who realized that some of them, especially those from more poor backgrounds and who were limited to attending public schools, were not achieving as high in the university entrance examination. And so they started realizing that they weren't getting the kind of education that others were, even though the government had committed and society had committed to ensuring everybody was in school, that there was equal financing per student for all, regardless of whether they went to public or private schools. And I think the fact that students started to kind of realize, and then they educated their parents. And I think I, I worked a lot in Chile, so I remember talking to a lot of stakeholders and what, what people would say to explain this kind of dissonance between what's happening in schools and how much students are learning and what parents perceive is that parents themselves have uh, a generational gap. They weren't privy to such good educational opportunities. Many of you know, the parents of the current students didn't go to, didn't finish secondary education and didn't go to university. Um, and, and they're just happy that their, their children have a school nearby and that they can go and they don't have this, the tools to judge whether the school is doing a good job or a poor job necessarily. And what happened in Chile that the students get educated and they're educated their parents that is not happening well, I think it was over time, two, two kind of critical moments. One was when they had um, what they called the Penguin Revolution, La Revolución de los Pingüinos, when the students, uh, secondary school students, who wear a uniform that is like a jacket with a black tie, so it makes them look like a penguin, um, went out to the streets because they were very upset that, um, you know, they weren't getting into the top universities mm. um, because their scores in the university entrance examination were lower than mm -hmm. those of their peers in uh, private schools. And so that led to a whole kind of, I think, social uprising, you know, that where teachers and parents and um, even leaders really said, this is true, we do have a very unequal system and it led to some reforms, including a reform in the voucher system um, uh, the introduction of new institutions to assure quality, like an independent evaluation agency and an independent superintendency of education mm -hmm. to kind of look at. But then there was another wave of protests, this time led by university students, who um, realized that they were taking out loans to attend uh, university education that was not preparing them to get jobs that then would allow them to pay back their loans. Um, and so then again, that's why I was saying all across our systems from K, from kindergarten through university, there has been, I think, in most of the region, a failure to ensure that the education quality or that the services that education institutions provide are really um, strong and are of high quality and that the students are benefiting because they're developing the skills that they will need to succeed. And it's gotten increasingly harder as the world is changing faster and faster due to technological uh, advances, the introduction of artificial intelligence, 
um, it makes it that much harder for our schools to adapt and to and to respond really. In uh, in terms of uh, quality of education, um, it's teaching the most important factor, or there are other factors. So the research. Evidence shows that teachers are the most important factor for student learning on the school side. So parents play a very important role on the student's background and the environment that they are growing up clearly has an impact. But once they're in school, it's the teacher that they have assigned to them that makes the most difference. Um, and so is it teaching per se? I think that with the advent of technology and the many, many useful technological tools that there are there for education, it's really about how teachers employ technology and other resources, not just technology, to make the education experience for students one where students become curious for learning, become lovers of learning, and become able to collaborate with others, to use information critically, because now information is everywhere. Any student can Google any piece of information, and it takes a lot of training and really thoughtful thinking to be able to uh, process information and apply it to new ideas and to solve problems. And so that's, I think, the role of the teacher. And I don't necessarily like to call it teaching because teaching to me conveys the old kind of style of a, an adult in front of many students giving a lecture. Mm -hmm. And I think more and more that's uh, the research from also how, how people learn shows that that's not the best way for anybody to learn, that we don't necessarily learn by hearing things or reading things that we learn by experiencing. And so it's ever more important for teachers to be the person in the classroom that really opens up new experiences for students. I recently talked about, uh, with Randy Bass from Georgetown University about the power of uh, experiential learning. Is, uh, that, that applies also to K-12. Absolutely. Uh, and do you have some examples in the region uh, around experiential learning or we're still missing that? I think there are some efforts in that direction. Um, you know, there's been in a few countries, in a few systems, efforts to introduce, for example, robotics, which gives students the opportunity to use math and coding to make robots do th certain things. And I think that's, you know, move in the right direction. I think in, in some systems, you, there are programs that, um, especially for the younger children, um, that are trying to introduce learning through play, which are very, um, you know, they're experiential based. So this idea of you, you learn when you play is very important, whether with technology or just with physical objects. Um, but I think there's so much room for that. And there's still so much more of the traditional classroom of a teacher in front of many students giving a lecture and trying to keep discipline. And I think the assumption that the way we all learn, I mean, anybody who's our age, <laughs> I won't say what that is, <laughs> but um, where we... Um, where we really sat passively and read or listened to what we were supposed to learn and then kind of re regurgitated that back in order to get good grades has been shown that is, A, not really how you build skills, and two, that because we all, everybody has a, their own learning pace and learning style, that when there's one sole, one only way of teaching at the same pace, in the same way to all students, 
half the students are going to be bored and half the students are going to be um, left behind. And so there's no such thing as the average student. And our school systems are really designed to teach an average student. And so I think we're failing massively. And we really have to rethink how, how we group students, how we um, train teachers, how we leverage technology and other resources. What's the power of uh, technology for achieving more effective teaching? I think there's such a promise in technology. Uh, we can see it in so many industries and in our own daily lives. You know, we all rely on technology to communicate with loved ones, to learn about things, to get the news, to find out facts. And, you know, and it has an enormous potential. I think the mistake that many systems, not just in our region, but also in advanced economies like the U.S. have made is to think that technology is a magic bullet and that it is um, going to somehow um, replace teachers or replace um, the, even schools, you know. I think um, teachers are really irreplaceable and they're extremely valuable. And I think what technology has the potential of doing is changing the role of teachers to make it even more interesting and more exciting so that they can be unburdened from daily tasks that are tedious, like taking attendance or grading tests, um, to, and, and so that they can also differentiate and help students who are behind immediately and help students who are bored you know, be challenged. And so I think that's kind of the promise. I think there are some interesting um, experiments or, or efforts in places like India with a program called MindSparks that has um, been uh, well evaluated to produce better results in math and in language learning. Using adaptive uh, learning? Yes, using adaptive learning. Um, at the higher education level, you see uh, Universities like Arizona State University doing a lot of interesting things with uh, to ensure that students don't fall behind using adaptive learning, for example, in math. You know, and so, but you know, the role of, of of teachers is is so important because students not only need content and um, drills, they really need that personal guide. Um, that, per that person who cares about them and their trajectory, who will know if they're having a bad day and can, you know, address that. Um, and there's no replacing that. So um, if you have um, some money to invest in, uh, in Latin America, I know Latin America is very heterogeneous. It's not like a single country. Uh, will you invest it in teacher training or technology? <gasps> That's a hard one. Um, or both, well, I would let you. I mean, I think that the way we do teacher training, I wouldn't want to invest in it right now unless we dramatically change. I think part of the problem is we don't have good technology employed to give us good information about what happens in classrooms mm -hmm. and how teachers teach and how students are learning. Um, and, you know, I, in my previous role as chief of education at the IDB, I visited many, many countries and I was always a little bit shocked to see how even the more uh, middle, high middle income countries in our region 
uh, when you talk to their ministers of education, they would honestly tell you that they couldn't necessarily identify which teacher is teaching which students and how much those students are learning. And if you don't have that information, how can you help teachers improve? Um, and so I think there's a big need for systems to become much more, uh, to use technology much more intentionally to, in terms of managing the system, in terms of even just the simple things like, you know, in many systems, you don't know necessarily, you might have information on student test scores, right? So student learning once a year. But by the time that gets processed, you still don't know which teachers teach which students. So you can't give information to a particular teacher about how to improve the outcomes of their students next time around. Um, and, and, and I think it's in part because the education systems haven't been built as learning systems themselves. I think if we think of our school systems as systems that should be learning as well all the time, then we would have technology used in so many other places, not just to take attendance, for example, but really in the classrooms to help teachers to take, you know, and, 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 and in real time so that everybody would be getting feedback at whatever level they are. The student would get feedback immediately to on how their learning progress is going. The teacher would get feedback on their practices and how to help students differently. The school head, the principal would get feedback on how other teachers are doing and how to help them do their job better, local office and so on. We don't have that system today in place. I think when we do collect information, it's too often to, to fill bureaucratic tasks, like to make sure we know that X teacher showed up so we can pay her, but not to make sure that she showed up and did a good job or not, and then we can help her do better. And the same with the student and the same with the principal. So I think that's, the, to me, the biggest need our region has right now is um, how to use technology to transform the entire system into a learning system. And that goes from the school to the central office. So we are talking in the world about data science, uh, business intelligence, uh, uh, marketing directed drilling to a person and depending on what you buy and what you do and what uh, sites you look for. But in education, we are almost on zero. And that's the amazing thing is that we are in the 21st century and the technology exists to do all that. And it's being employed very effectively in other industries. I mean, if you think all of us are probably Amazon users and Amazon knows what we like, what we don't, what, we, what are our habits. They make recommendations if you buy something regularly when it's about to be due. You know, why can't we employ something like that? Not to um, obviously spy on people, but to help people learn and to help people be better and to guide them. You know, if you have read this book, you might like this book, or if you have read this book and you found it challenging, maybe we recommend this book that is less challenging so then you can reread the one that was challenging and so on, you know. Um, so I think we live in a, in a, in a privileged era of incredibly, incredible opportunities, um, exponential change, and yet our education systems are changing at a pace that is just making us fall more and more behind our competitors around the globe. So you said that right now, uh, most of the information we got is if uh, the teacher show up or not in order to make sure that uh, uh, this person is and, going. And that's often reported by 
you know, by hand, by the principal, and sometimes not very reliable, right? Not very reliable. So uh, what kind of information will be the, let's say, the minimum necessary to take from the field in order to give back that feedback that will be very helpful for all the system? So I think at a minimum, you would want to know, um, you know, of course, whether which are the teachers in which schools and which classrooms, which a lot of times you don't have, and grouped with what students. And then are they all attending? Who is, who's attending? Who's not? And then on a certain given day, and then what's happening that given day? And, and that could be from, you know, what kinds of in-classroom assessments are taking place and what are they telling the students and the teachers about their learning pro progress and how can they um, improve to um, what kind of time allocation is taking place. You know, we know from studies by some of our colleagues that our classrooms um, our teachers spend a lot of time in non-instructional activities so that there's a, even though our school days tend to be shorter than those in many other countries, let's say you have a four-hour school day. Of those four hours, only 40% is really active learning, if active, but, you know, um, and 60% goes into classroom management, you know, um, recreo, recess, uh, other activities that are unrelated to learning. And so we really, it's amazing that we're not farther behind given how little time we devote to learning. Um, but um, so, so all that, you know, and that information that we have, we have it from um, observational studies that are a one-time survey. But we don't have regular systematic information at the system level of what's happening, right? And so that's, that's what I would like to see, is systems that want to have all, more information that they can process and that have the ability to process the key information so that they can act in, in, a, in a timely fashion to affect what happens in classrooms. It seems that that information is not uh, that uh, sophisticated or, or complex. But uh, obtaining that information is complex. Where, com where does the complexity of this comes from? So I think it comes in part due to size. So our systems tend to be large, particularly in Mexico and Brazil. So, you know, how do you do it at scale? You can do it maybe if you have one school uh, very effectively. And that's where technology plays a big role. So can you leverage technology to do it at scale? Um, because then it becomes easier. And that requires teachers who are capable of, you know, managing certain software programs and students the same and, and the central office that can collect and, and analyze the data and, you know, provide feedback in real time. Um, you know, it's, I think, honestly, it's a challenge for all industries, but you think that you see that companies like I mentioned Amazon or the big technology companies, but also manufacturing companies must have really good data because they must know when a product is not, you know, getting produced because they can't put it in the market. Um, in education systems, we're so far behind that. So I think we should look at other industries and see how they do it and try to bring some of that to our, to our schools, not with the objective of rewarding or incentivizing necessarily at the individual level, but with the purpose of giving feedback at the individual level so that everybody is focused on the task, which is really skills and, and, and skills building. Okay. 
Well, moving to another subject, uh, um, when I asked you about the effectiveness of a system, uh, you said that teaching was one of the most important components besides what happens at home. So can you talk a little bit about uh, the importance of that and if we can do something to improve what happens at home? Yeah. Um, so we know from many, many longitudinal studies and, and from many decades of education research that um, the family and the family environment has a, a very substantial impact on student learning and their educational trajectories. And there, there are things that can be done. I mean, there's interesting studies both in early childhood about parenting and how, what the impact that might be, like the study from Jamaica at very low cost. You had health uh, uh, trained workers who went into homes and helped parents understand how to how important it was to talk to their children, to stimulate them besides feeding them, you know? So um, that was, and it showed results um, in the students' education outcomes, but also as adults in their um, work uh, opportunities, in their earnings, and in their propensity to engage in risky behaviors such as drugs and things that would, and criminal activities. Um, there's also more recent research, which I find very interesting in the U.S., where um, parents are given information about, for example, when their students are absent. Um, and how that compares to other students in their class or their school. So a lot of parents might think that the fact that their student is missing one day is not a big deal and they might be permissive. But when they are given information that, look, your son missed five days of school, whereas the rest of the students in the class only missed one, it puts a little bit more in perspective, the, you know, the kind of the impact that that may have in, in, in the child's trajectory. So that's some experiments that are happening that are showing very promising results using um, behavioral economics and behavioral sciences. Um, you know, I think there have been efforts to promote reading at home. We know that, you know, kids whose parents read to them and who are more highly educated have just better educational outcomes and life outcomes. And so it, it the fact that some of uh, our adults in Latin America didn't grow up reading or didn't have the best schooling uh, means that we we are perpetuating inequality right so um so all that i think is our efforts that have been tried with, with with mixed success but that are worth continuing to invest in um and then i think schools really have to um on their side, partner with parents and make a bigger effort in reaching out to parents uh, to make sure they're part of the equation. You know, I, um, I love the Suzuki method, which is for teaching um, music to young, young children. And the Suzuki method has two premises that I particularly like. One is that anybody can be a really good musician so that you're not born necessarily with a mm -hmm. talent to learn, but that you can develop it because you're, as you're little and you're growing, your mind gets exposed to music and you can learn it. Anybody can. And they have shown that over and over again. And the second premise that I love about the method is that it's not just the student or the teacher or the parent. It's that combination. It's that triangle that they call that is key to ensure that every student can learn music uh, successfully. And I think it's the same um, for learning 
every skill that it's that combination of the teacher, the student, and and the parent that should be a team to ensure that the students have a good learning experience. And and I think it's also the commitment of uh, um, uh, at least the school and the parents that uh, uh, that education is important. That, uh, yeah. I, I I don't think that uh, that we have that commitment in the region. Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of lip service to that. So no one will say I don't value education. No politician will say. No parent will say. But then, what do they really mean when you know, we know that they're not necessarily allocating, you know, the same amount of resources to education and to teacher training and to teacher salaries, frankly, as they should. You know, if we want to have excellent teachers, we have to pay them accordingly. Because we know that, you know, and we, we, we did a recent book when I was at the Inter-American Development Bank with my colleagues about how the profession, the teacher profession, has evolved in Latin America and why it lost its prestige. And one of the key findings was that, you know, as more and more opportunities opened up to women, um, the most capable women ended up choosing, you know, other professions that had better returns and more challenging environments. And um, and education is super challenging because being a teacher is a very challenging job, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it needs to be paid accordingly. And it's so valuable because you know none of us would want our children to go to a school where a teacher doesn't deliver, right? Okay, and um, maybe the last uh, question before we finish up. Uh, talk. Um, there some governments give money uh, to the parents uh, in order uh, of uh, lower socioeconomical levels in order that they can keep their children going to school uh, instead of putting them out of school uh, for work or uh, uh, agricultural labor, for instance, etc. Uh, what are the results of those programs and what, what have we learned uh, from those programs? I mean, there's been a lot written about that, and I'm not the best expert on this, but I, my reading of the literature is that when those programs um, are well-targeted and the conditions are clear, then they can be very successful. So um, there's a long literature in conditional cash transfers, right? And a lot of the... Uh, Mexico was obviously one of the first countries to do a, a program at scale and to also do an impact evaluation that showed promising results. Um, and uh, it, it's very interesting. I think there's a, a, a literature that shows that um, the, how you actually transfer the resources matters a lot. So as I was um, learning about this, I kind of, at first I think you, you mentioned the money went to the parents when the children are young to ensure that they, you know, meet certain nutrition, health, and education targets. And then as the children grow and become adolescents, there have been some experiments to try and see should the money go to the parents or to the students based on attendance. And it seems like changing the subsidy to the student as they get older is also uh, increases impact. Um, and, you know, that's my reading of the literature and also more recently, there, there are some recent experiments looking at the very, very poor um, and seeing if when you transfer to, you know, in communities in, in Africa, some organizations have tried to just give an entire community a basically a small wage 
and see what happens over time. And that, that has also shown that when you're in extreme poverty, it's the lack of access to like the basics that really hinders creativity and development and entrepreneurship. And so when that kind of minimum level of poverty where you can live is uh, taken care of, then people can actually be innovative and create productive labor and actually generate growth for their village. Um, so there's a lot of interesting layers on this one. Um, I think what, what I think has been also shown is that when you give kind of subsidies to everyone the same with limited conditions, with limited expectations, then you basically, unless they're the poorest of the poor, then it's uh, probably not going to yield a lot of effects. And if it yields effect, it's mostly on things that don't matter as much. Like maybe they're going to school but not learning, you know. Great. What are the, the things that are worrying you right now, your new projects? Um, that's a very good question. I mean, I keep, t I, I think that one of my biggest concerns is what we started talking about. It's how rapidly the world is changing and how um, conservative education systems worldwide tend to be. And I think It's hard for us, even in positions like mine, where you know I'm researching and advising governments, and uh, to to imagine a completely different education system. Um, I'll, I'll tell you from my personal story. I'm from Venezuela, and I keep thinking, you know, everything in Venezuela is so um, difficult right now. And if there were an opportunity to rebuild the country, would we try to rebuild the education system as we had it, or would we like to completely over, um, overturn it and do something new and different and that hasn't been done before? And I would yield to the second one, and I would say I would try and group students not by age, but by... Um, level of competency. By or? level of skills and by, you know, interest and try to have... Um, you know, within a band of age, because obviously there's developmental differences, mm -hmm but then try to have a system where we could track how each child is individually learning the key com competencies that the country would expect every citizen to have, and then help them along the way with technology, with experiences. And, and I think that's so doable now, and it wasn't just 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a lot of uh, hesitation and a lot of... Um, fear that if we do things dramatically different, we might, you know, run into problems. And the reality, in my view, is that because we have done things the same way as we have forever, since, you know, our great-grandparents were alive, um, we have the problems we have today. Yes, but I, I expect that we can see more of that future in, in those countries. Yeah. I mean, and I think everybody has to really be committed. I think teachers need to be the first ones leading the change. Mm -hmm. And that's so hard in our countries because they are afraid of their job posts. And so we have to give them the comfort to innovate and to do things differently and the guidance on how to do it. Um, and I also think we need to um, build new skills. So one of the skills that I think is ever more important is computational thinking. Mm -hmm. um, It's not just about programming, but I think 
given that how much digital technology is taking over every field, I think everybody needs to be at least digitally, you know, competent and be, and I think in acquiring those skills, there are also so many other skills that are developed, like collaboration, like creativity, like mathematical and logical thinking, that it's one where a lot of our students aren't even exposed to yet, and our teachers certainly haven't been. And so how do we bridge mm -hmm. that gap before it's too late? Mm -hmm. So that you, uh, you, you cannot give what you don't have, so you have to develop that, that right. those skills in the teachers. Right. Well, uh, thank you very much for this uh, uh, interesting talk. Indiana. Thank you, Jose. A pleasure. Well, see you soon. Yes. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx/edutrendspodcast. Thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer Miguel Mejía. Edutrends producer Esteban Venegas and Christian Guijosa. Post-production Max Perez. Stay tuned for the next episode of Edutrends and visit Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content. <laughs>